The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Wednesday edition of Squawkbox. These are your headlines. China's economic recovery is dealt another blow with factory activity contracting for the first time in almost 18 months as strict COVID curbs take their toll. China's data security law comes into effect, enacting a cornerstone of Beijing's efforts to regulate the country's internet future. Apple and Google come under pressure as South Korea passes a bill limiting Apple and Google's control over App Store payments. OPEC Plus says it sees oil markets tightening through the end of the year, but expects a surplus in 2022 as production cuts ease. And President Biden defends his decision to pull out of Afghanistan, saying the era of U.S. nation building is over. It's not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. says here, welcome to Scorebox. There you go. I thought I've already done that. But anyway, welcome again to Scorebox. Good morning. Good morning. Nice How are you? you? Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Wednesday. And the first uh, trading day of September, isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> are we in the final third? of the- I mean, we it is absolutely stretch. extraordinary. You think about what everybody psychologically, let alone physically, let alone financially, let alone socially, but psychologically what we've all gone through since February last year. It's I still mean, going through, because don't forget this yeah. time, you know, in 2021, we were expecting that we'd be through most of the, the problems, but here we continue focusing on the Delta variant, still talking about an economic recovery, questioning what's around the corner. It is Things all have improved, the old not questions. That, that far, not as much as we expected. And you were though. talking yesterday uh, you know, about different variants that people are of concern now as well. It's quite extraordinary. But uh, yeah, if one good thing has come from this, it's people beginning to take mental health seriously these days. So that. One small thing, isn't it? Right, Chinese factory activity contracted in August for the first time since April 2020, according to the official data. The Kaishin manufacturing PMI fell to 49.2. That is well below analyst expectations of 50.2. Coronavirus measures, as well as supply chain issues and higher costs of raw materials, continue to weigh on output in the world's second largest economy. Also, China's new data security law comes into force today as Beijing moves to tighten rules on tech companies and their use of customer data. This amid fears national security could be compromised. Well, Arjun has more on these stories as well. Arjun, very good to see you. Why don't you just take it away and and lead it in whichever direction you choose, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Yeah, well, this is certainly a wide ranging and very significant uh, piece of legislation, the data security law here. It's not just going to affect the tech industry, but it will affect uh, industries, uh, uh, various industries across China as well. And the purpose really is to regulate data activities, data protection as well. China, as you mentioned, there's concern about the amount of uh, data being collected by companies and actually the uh, impact of that if there is a cyber attack or if it falls into 
hands of foreign governments uh, as well. Now, data is seen by many countries nowadays as the lifeblood of many companies. It's seen as key to future technological development as well. And that's the same here in China. Just a few key highlights of this data security law. Uh, they're proposing a class-based system of data, ranking data according to its economic and national security importance. They're tightening rules around the cross-border data flows out of China uh, as well. Uh, they're also requiring firms to have a strict data security um, measures in place around technical developments, reporting breaches, and hefty fines for those that do not comply with the regulation. Now, a few points I want to make. This is one piece of what has become a broader regulatory push, particularly around data. China, as I mentioned, sees uh, data as a key asset and wants to regulate that and create a robust framework for the future. Secondly, What's going to be key for investors here is how this law is applied. There's a lot of vague parts of this law which could be interpreted in certain ways by authorities and investors will be watching very closely about how that pans out. And finally, with this law, China really has moved from one of the least uh, regulated data economies to one of the most. And that's really links in to its long term development goals when it comes to technology. Along with these other regulations we've seen, Beijing feels that these uh, laws are very key to the long-term competitiveness of its technology industry going forward. Guys, back to you. Arjun, um, it has been a, a wealth, a plethora, a cacophony of updates in terms of regulation. You mentioned other regulation as well uh, in China so far this year. It's been quite extraordinary to digest as well, and, and people are still trying to work out what's going on. Are people also trying to say what's next? Because it seems inconceivable that this is the end of the pronouncements from the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, you're right, Steve. I mean, what is next? That is the big question. I think one of the things we have seen, however, what I would say is we've seen a lot of landmark, very landmark policies in place over the last few months. There was the uh, antitrust regulation. There's been the data security law, which we're talking about now. There's a GDPR equivalent coming out later this year. So a lot of those has got, there's been the big gaming regulation as well. So I think those are in place now. A lot of the attention is going to turn uh, onto how those are, uh, you know, applied to companies and what impact they have on the business model. But I think when it comes uh, to what next, there's certainly likely to be further tightening on restrictions. If you think about antitrust uh, as well, there's an investigation of Meituan, the food delivery company going on. This is an area that uh, uh, regulators are very concerned about. On the data front, these laws are going to be sort of imposed on companies and how those happen are going to sort of, I think, determine how these businesses behave going in the future. I think the um, attention from uh, investors now will certainly turn to from what is coming next to actually how a lot of this is going to be applied. And that's going to determine a lot, as I mentioned, about how these businesses continue to operate going forward. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that. And we will watch this space. But we're also going to be joined now by Tommy Wu, who is the lead economist at Oxford Economics. Tommy, thank you very much, sir, for joining us today. Well, let's, uh, let's start off with the, the, the obvious question, first of all. What is going on uh, in this latest set of Kaishin? We saw the PMIs, of course. Uh, should we be worried about the pace of economic growth in China? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, I think what had happened was um, uh, the weak PMI readings for August are pointing to uh, a few things. Basically, uh, the, the resurgence of COVID uh, between uh, late July and August uh, that had certainly dampened domestic demand and also uh, caused 
uh, production, uh, production and supply chain disruptions, and and also uh, we have a we have a, a few serious floods in central China that also affected uh, productions. And the second thing is the spread of Delta variant globally and also global uh, supply chain bottlenecks are also having an impact on uh, the demand for exports coming from China. So I think that's what uh, these uh, sets of uh, PMIs are actually reflecting. Tommy, can we draw any conclusions from what China is going through now for what might lay ahead for other Western countries at this point? Because we're always looking towards China first into the crisis, first out as a leading indicator. Is it still having that leading indicator dynamic now for other markets? Um, I think um, because China uh, got out of the um, uh, COVID shock first and now um, it's going through uh, a, a, a down to economic uh, slowdown, uh, whereas uh, especially in the advanced economies, uh, uh, these economies are actually recovering. So uh, China is at a, at a different stage uh, of uh, economic uh, uh, business cycle uh, than, say, in the advanced economies. I think uh, this will have an uh, impact on, say, uh, how the, the global recovery will play out, especially uh, among emerging markets. Tommy, I want to ask you about this cultural shift that is taking place in China that's now being led by Beijing. And we've seen it through a number of different uh, rules and regulations and commentary in recent weeks. And the push around online gaming, the curbs for children under 18. Also, when it comes to uh, the pursuit of excess wealth, uh, it's been called common prosperity. How far does this go, do you think, in terms of changing the, the culture on the ground in China these days? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the regulatory tightening that we have been seeing so far, uh, whether it's in tech sector, in education, or uh, when we come back to the clamping down on on leverage of, say, uh, uh, the property developers, I think all of these are trying to achieve a, uh, a long-term goal of having a, a stable uh, environment for a long-term economic prosperity uh, as opposed to uh, uh, you know, only certain companies or people uh, getting wealthy. So uh, it's it's really about uh, laying uh, all the you know all the all the fundamentals uh, for long term economic development, whether it's uh, fairer competition, uh, a, a a trying to build a. Uh, larger size of a middle income group that will support the economic rebalancing going forward uh, or creating a uh, you know better consumer protection, data protection. And also uh, what's concerning Beijing is also the uh, national security. So um, I think all of these are trying to build a more robust uh, model uh, for, for China's economic development in the decades ahead. Is it by design or by um, coincidence building a moat, though, around the Chinese economy, the Chinese private sector, which is going to make it very difficult for international capital, for FDI to come into the country because uh, it's going to put them at a disadvantage compared with other areas where actually there is unmitigated access to profit, if I may put it that way? Um, I think Beijing still wants to attract uh foreign capital uh, into the country. It's just that uh, which, like, which type of industries uh, do they want to see uh, foreign capitals coming in? It's not just foreign capital. It's If you think about it, uh, even for domestic sectors, uh, I think uh, 
the Chinese government wants uh, certain services uh, or service sectors uh, to be done primarily by the state and uh, leave other sectors open for uh, the domestic sectors as well as foreign sectors. So I would think that, for instance, uh, with education and also perhaps uh, healthcare uh, would be two of the sectors that uh, the, the the Chinese government want to be uh, more, uh, you know, basically uh, operated by the state. Uh, whereas for things like uh, the, the strategic industries, such as you know semiconductors or other other high tech uh, sectors. Uh, green and new energy. I think these are the sectors that will uh, continue to be opened up for uh, domestic players, domestic private players, as well as uh, foreign capital investment. Let me change tack, if I may, um, and look at your comments. You say you do not think policymakers have the appetite for a significant easing of overall macro policy, which goes to where we came in, Tommy, as well, and concern about the slowing data. And Karen pointing out to you, with you, uh, that, of course, uh, China's been a bit of a bellwether in terms of recovery. If things are slowing down, you don't think, though, that the policymakers, perhaps the PBOC, are going to come to the rescue? Um. I think well, because the uh, Beijing nowadays talks about uh, cross-cyclical policymaking, so they care uh, less about a, a a downturn or an upturn, and they care more about the the medium-term growth. Now, having said that, I don't think the uh, policymakers would want to see a sharp slowdown of the Chinese economy. So that's why actually I would uh, I'm, I'm I did pencil in uh, one uh, triple R cut. Uh, for uh, in 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 the, in the coming coming months, uh, in order to support uh, uh, the economy, in the sense that uh, I would expect uh, there will be a speeding up of uh, local government special bond issuance that will support uh, uh, some sort of acceleration in infrastructure investment for the rest of the year and into early part of next year, and 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 the triple R cut will provide enough. Uh, liquidity, hopefully, uh, to you know to absorb the increased amount of uh, government bond issuance. So I think uh, there is some fine tuning of uh, uh, policy supports. Uh, for instance, I will see continued support to SMEs as well as the strategic sectors. But uh, I wouldn't think that there will be, as you said, uh, 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 we, we. I don't think there will be. They will have an appetite to have a shift. Uh, in terms of, of in terms of its uh, a major shift in its policy stance when it comes to easing. Just quickly, can I ask you about commodities? Because we saw a pushback from China in recent months around the escalation of those raw material prices. What do you think comes next on the demand side and the tone from China? Um, I think um, the ongoing uh, deleveraging campaign on, say, real estate. Uh, sector will continue, so that would certainly have an impact on demand for uh, you know steels and and iron or uh, that kind of thing. And the the other thing is I've I've mentioned that uh, that there will be uh, perhaps a a boost of infrastructure investment in the coming months, but I wouldn't say that it would accelerate uh, sharply because um, the Chinese government still cares a lot about uh, local government debt, so. That means that uh, without uh, you know increasing of uh, 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 an excessive increasing of debt, I don't think infrastructure investment will 
see a, a very rapid acceleration. So, so that would also have an, uh, you know, a, a sort of a dampening impact on uh, these commodities that are related to infrastructure. Uh, whereas I would say that uh, uh, the demand for commodities that are related, related to uh, new and green energy and also electric vehicles uh, will get a boost. Uh, you know, it's not just from uh, the demand coming from China, but basically globally. Sounds like a copper story over iron ore. Tommy, thank you very much for joining us today. Tommy, we lead economist at Oxford Economics. And let's circle back to the market activity. We saw stateside yesterday, uh, a pullback, bit of a weak finish for the month of August and uh, major indices all in lockstep moving south. But the percentage losses, you can see, very slim ranges, only about a tenth of a percent coming off the likes of the Dow. Similar size uh, picture for the S&P 500 decline. The Nasdaq only fractionally off the flat line by the finish. But it was a tale of selling in a, a number of sectors, energy leading the charge lower, a little bit more resilience, though, in the real estate sector, where again saw some fresh records inked. But uh, worth noting, in the technology space, we did see a very mixed performance from some of those FANG stocks, which is uh, perhaps why we didn't stray too far from that flat line on the NASDAQ. Let's take a look at the energy complex then, because we have had a little bit of movement in the oil price and nudging high by roughly seven-tenths of a percent on both trades, 72 the handle for Brent and uh, close to the 69 level for WTI. We had that industry report out of the United States showing a, a bigger than expected drawdown in inventories last week. But uh, all eyes on OPEC Plus as we watch the supply side arrangements and whether, in fact, uh, OPEC Plus will proceed with uh, some extra production moves that we're expecting towards the next uh, few months leading up to December. Uh, What we've got in the Asian markets today... An early look, uh, you can see it is positive for many of these markets. The Japanese stock market bouncing more than 1% at this point as slim ranges for the Shenzhen market. Uh, Shanghai, though, improving, as you can see. It is a solid old day playing out for both the uh, Shanghai Composite and also for the Hong Kong market. But this is symbolic of a bounce back after some of the selling that has hit the market on the back of uh, the Chinese crackdown on big technology companies and various enterprises. Net ease and Tencent, two stocks that in particular had been fairly hard hit of also seeing a bit of an upward tick today which has reversed some of the outflows that we've witnessed don't forget 10 cents been off about 50 odd percent from those february levels on the back of the crackdown of course yesterday we're talking about the three hours per day for those under 18 uh, that they're allowed in terms of online uh, video gaming for the week that's just three hours and uh, these stocks of course uh, very much uh, at the forefront of the video game making development Indeed they are. Big rally, yeah. Um, I think the biggest story of the day, we haven't really even chatted, I say the biggest story of the day, certainly for some companies, and it's coming out of South Korea, so we're going to spend a bit more time on that after the break. <laughs> South Korea's uh, putting through a landmark law which allows app developers, such as uh, Epic Games, to set up their own payment system, which means they can bypass Apple and Google. Now, this could be a potentially huge story if other countries pick up on this. Uh, we'll talk about this after the break. And if you'd like to hear more about China's tech crackdown, you can listen to our Squawk Box podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Korea has become the first country in the world to ban companies like Apple and Google from requiring app developers to use only the tech giant's own payment systems. Currently, Google and Apple take commissions up to 30% of app purchases from the developers. The law, which still needs President Moon Jae-in's signature, could set a global precedent as regulators look into app store fees. Josh Lipton filed this report. Big tech we know has been under fire, and that includes, of course, those big app stores. South Korea's parliament now making news on that front, banning companies from requiring developers to use their online payment systems when making in-app purchases. In other words, developers can now avoid paying commissions to those app store operators, directing users instead to pay with alternative systems. Big tech, not happy. An Apple spokesperson saying the bill will put users who purchase digital goods from other sources at risk of fraud undermine their privacy protections, make it difficult to manage their purchases and features like ask to buy and parental controls will become less effective. They added that user trust in app store purchases will likely decrease as a result of the legislation. A Google spokesperson also weighing in saying its service fee helps keep Android free, giving developers the tools and global platform to access billions of consumers around the world will reflect on how to comply with this law while maintaining a model that supports a high quality operating system in app store, Google said and we'll share more in the coming weeks. Now, Sensor Tower estimates that consumers in South Korea spent about $4.6 billion on Google Play last year. That means, by their math, Google was able to collect about $1.4 billion in platform fees. As for Apple, they think South Korean consumers spent about $1.4 billion on the App Store in 2020, subject to Apple's fee of up to 30%, earning the company, they think, about $414 million. So the risk for investors here is not the money, but whether this is the start of some broader trend. Will other countries now pass similar bills? The present of South Korea, by the way, must still review and sign this bill. Josh Lipton, CNBC Business News. It's all there from Josh, isn't it? it yes. It's not the money from South Korea now that's the problem. Uh, the fine, I believe, is what, 3% of their revenue in South Korea if they don't comply. It's the, the precedent for other desperately over-leveraged economies and sovereign nations around the world and exchequers who are desperate for money they see a couple of companies who are making hay globally and they want some of it. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about tech dominance, whether these companies have simply gotten too big and whether they should actually be acting more like gatekeepers rather than uh, being competitive in the space uh, with some of their, their rivals as well, given their, their market dominance. And here we're talking about a system that has pushed these app developers to use their payment system, which uh, means they have to pay these commissions. I mean, the argument from the companies is that effectively they do more than just uh, process payments for these apps, for the developers. They do a lot more maintenance. If you 
think about all the security problems we've had when it comes to online uh, apps, there is an argument that you do need some security. They don't defense. do that for the companies. Right. They do that for us. The consumer for the, otherwise will go well, elsewhere. For both, really. I mean, you don't want to be targeted as a company. You don't want to be targeted as a consumer. And that's the argument from the company, from the likes of Google and Apple, that they do protect many from uh, some of the problems they could face. But that said, I mean, has their dominance just been too great? And should there be a little bit of handing back of those profits? I mean, the 30% commission, that has also been eroded by them in recent times, trying to avert some of legislation. Yes, they have, yes. They've actually wound down some of those provisions for the smaller didn't they, companies. Didn't they go from 30 to 50? Here we go. Google the said Google, that it would yeah. halve commissions to 15%. I, I think there's other things in here as well. And I don't think it's just about the law banning um, them requiring the payment in-app as well, an in-app purchasing system. It's also uh, banning um, them from delaying approval for apps or inappropriately removing them from the app stores, plus from insisting on exclusivity with app developers um, so I think the fact that there's three prongs to this as well really ties the likes of Google and Apple in knots. And I think the money is huge. I know jo mm -hmm. Josh said it wasn't about the money from South Korea, but it's about the precedent. And I think the two are inextricably linked. And again, I'm looking at the FT copy um, out of Seoul, uh, Song Jung-A, great copy as well. But it says this suggests the place or basically makes as much as 20% of Apple's uh, big pardon, Alphabet's income from operations in 2019, uh, distributing, uh, despite contributing less than 10% to Google parents' overall revenue. So we're talking about an enormous income stream as well here, Absolutely. which is going to be sived potentially, and almost certainly other nations are going to pick up on this and have a look at it. Well, don't forget through the lens of Apple, we've been talking about this transition away from pure hardware sales towards more services growth. And we're yes. talking about services, we're yes, talking about have. this App Store commission effectively as, as part of the mix. And we're going to park that conversation but there. The but it's Can I just say one yeah. thing in their defence? Mm. We, we, we used to row 20 years ago about the 3G. Uh, and the fact that there was a lack of decent content. Mm. These operators, these hardware that have provided us with amazing platforms to do things we were never able to do before as well. There is a little bit of license, surely, for companies that have created something that wasn't there beforehand. Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, Apple and Google's defense, they're saying that uh, many of these app developers have shared in the rewards as well, so they haven't exactly been yeah, there been to the side. More revenues to market. Uh, speaking of revenues, we're going to talk about Pernod Ricard, which is just crossing our numbers from the uh, alcohol giant. Its uh, four-year sales rose 9.7% to 8.82 billion euros. The net sales figure uh, that you are seeing today on the four-year consolidated net sales at uh, 8.8 uh, billion euros versus 8.45 billion same time a year ago. The profit number from recurring operations for the full year, 2.42 billion versus 2.26 billion, same time a year ago. So nudging higher on these numbers and a dividend of 3.12 euros is proposed for the AGM as of the 10th of November. They're expecting good sales momentum to continue in full year 2022, in particular, a very dynamic Q1, very dynamic uh, first quarter uh, prediction. That's uh, interesting. Let me get to Charlotte for more on that, Charlotte. We're getting a little bit of these numbers about what's transpired as the economy is reopened, but also some forward-looking statements. What do you make of the commentary? 
But you think here following the trend of what we saw in Q3 after they had sales up uh, in Q3 after two quarters of sales being down and you see the recovery is really coming through and EBIT there at a, up 18% at 2.4 billion. So just a little bit above expectation. Remember that at the end of June, they upgraded their guidance for that figure to 16%. That was from a previous 10% uh, figure. And they said the recovery was faster than expected in all the markets, of course, in the US being very dynamic, China as well, and of course, Europe as well, reopening with the lifting of the lot of the restrictions there. So results are a little bit above expectations. Organic sales up 10% to 8.8 billion. So again, just above expectations. They mentioned though an adverse uh, forex effect from the US dollar uh, against uh, the, the euro. It sells in America up 14%. Asia and rest of the world sells up 11% driven by China. India, which is the third largest market, they, they say things are a little bit slower. Europe sells up 4%. They mentioned a dynamic rebound in the UK and Germany, offsetting a decline in Spain and Ireland. I mentioned that Q4 sales, looking at Q4 specifically, sales were up 54, uh, 56% on an organic basis. Again, here about in line with expectations. And I mentioned a significant investment in some of their brands for the, for the rest of uh, for next year. E-commerce was up 63%. And I mentioned that we'll be, make more investment to keep pushing in that side of the business. So again, uh, they mentioned a dividend that will be paid at 3.12 euros back to the historical high that is so in 2019 and a share buyback program that will resume in 2022. Then they don't give a guidance, something that we've seen in other uh, drink makers. They don't give a specific guidance. They said that the, the outlook is still a little bit uncertain. But they, they reconfirm some targets that are given previously of a top line growth between 4 and 7%. And of course, uh, uh, investment at around 16%. We've seen this push from the drink makers into the premium side of the business. We've seen consumers while stuck at home taking a taste for making cocktails and that's really pushed some of their premium brands. They keep pushing investments in that side of the business. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.